This morning's show was pre-recorded. Good morning, this is Bo Matthews, and this is Let's Talk on News Talk 1050 KSIS. Let's Talk is a one-hour program devoted to issues and developments that are of importance to Sedalia and the surrounding communities. By committing an entire hour to a subject and many times having experts join us in the studio, we will be able to delve into the topic of the week and provide you with a fuller understanding of what is happening in our community. Another edition of Let's Talk on News Talk 1050 KSIS. I'm Bo Matthews with John Meehan and Ron Tolner. And we have a special guest with us today as we have Representative Brad Pollitt with us. John, do you want to introduce him a little bit more elaborately? Oh, sure. Good morning, Bo. Good morning, Good Ron. Morning. And yes, we do have a Representative Brad Pollitt here in our studios this morning. And Brad, thank you for being here. You know, we've known each other for a real long time. I can remember um, uh, you coaching basketball, girls basketball at Smith Cotton. And my daughter happened to be on uh, on the team and very early in her uh her high school career, although you told her she was a pretty good basketball player, but her really expertise and and athletic ability really lent her more to running. And uh, that was really good advice for her. She decided to switch from basketball to running and actually became state cross-country champ. So appreciate all the guidance you've done in that over the years. And and Ron and I both had the opportunity to serve on the Sedalia 200 school board, so we became familiar with Brad during that period of time. And Ron and I both worked together on the Sedalia School District Foundation and had a great time supporting the Sedalia schools at that point. So we've known each other for a long time. Brad, thank you again for being here today. Share with our listeners a little bit more about Brad Pollock. Again, thank you all for having me. I think it's important that we have opportunities in, in our positions to talk about views and talk about things that are going on in our state and in our country. And, and so I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Um, I'm originally from Iowa. I grew up on a family farm in Iowa. I have a brother and a sister, mother and my mother and father have both passed away. Um, you know, I'm one of those blessed people that they say you can't pick your family, but you can pick your friends. And I believe that the opportunity would have been that if I could pick my family, I would have picked my mother and father. And we were blessed in that way. Um, Dad lived the American dream. Um, we lost mom about 40 years ago, but <clears throat> Dad started with nothing, retired or didn't retire. He was four years in the Navy and came back to Iowa with nothing. And, and he passed away last December. And during that time, he had uh, accumulated a, a number of acres in Iowa and had a large cattle operation and and that was all through hard work and just the opportunities that we have in this country to live that American dream and through the sweat of your brow and people believing in you having those opportunities and that's something that I hope this country will never forget and this country will continue to to live that type of lifestyle. I went to school at Truman, used to be Northeast Missouri State and I ended up um, at North Shelby. I was there for uh, six years. I was girls basketball coach there. We won a state championship in 1990. That's something you don't don't ever forget and that's something the kids never forget and and it really changes your lives in certain ways gives you opportunities and I came to Sedalia and I've been in Sedalia my wife and I've been here 35 years right now and have two daughters that graduated from Smith Cotton High School and I have a stepson that, that's still in Northeast Missouri so again very blessed came up through the school system started as a teacher coach became an assistant principal at the middle school at the school that you actually taught at you become assistant principal at and and there's issues that come with that as you now become a, a boss of folks that you were a peer to and, and there's issues with that but from there went to becoming a, a principal assistant superintendent at Knob Noster and, and Smithton and came back to Sedalia as assistant superintendent and then eventually became superintendent and after 34 years in public education I'm 
decided to retire and run for the position that I currently have. And I'm blessed to have it, in my opinion, even though there's a lot of issues that's going on, I still think it's important that we have folks in these positions that can listen to reason and also have common sense. My wife and I own a cattle operation, Rocker Peak Cattle Company, so we're small business owners. We run about 150 mama cows, and so I'm usually pretty busy. Your responsibilities being a state representative takes you out of our community and Jeff City on a regular basis and all the time that that takes. And I understand that your wife really does the majority of the cattle operation. Is that true? I mean, right here on well, the Well, in the, in, from January through May, I'm in Jeff City at least four days, three nights a week. And so, yes, that is the winter months. We start our spring calving in, in February, so my wife goes out on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and feeds cattle, checks waters, and I'm very lucky to have her to do that. Fantastic lady. So we had you on on our previous show, and we it was all about the opportunity that has been presented to State Fair Community College and the Missouri State Fairgrounds, and it's an opportunity to expand their footprint into the west out there. Uh, and I know you were active in, in this process. Can you give us a little update on that? Well, you know, we started this process. Um, I'd heard rumors before years ago that the fair had the opportunity to purchase that land, 400 acres. I'd heard that that land may be again possibly for sale, so I followed up on that, and, and it is for sale, and, you know, met with a number of individuals, the State Fair Foundation, the, the college, and then the State Fair um, Commission, and met with the governor's folks, asking the governor to put the money in the budget in order to purchase that land. The governor's come back with a 50-50 match, which means that the state will pay half, and the college foundation has to come up with another half, and the State Fair Foundation has to come up with another with the other half for the those lands and I feel real good about it at this point we had a meeting the other day to start talking about fundraising for the state fair and their foundation and you know it's good business and I appreciate the governor and I appreciate his people and we're going to spend taxpayer dollars we have to be very proficient in how we do that and we have to cross all the T's and dot all the I's and a lot of that goes better when you do have a match when you have some skin in the game and we've got that here and we're going to be asking for some donations from some different groups hopefully and that we can purchase that land because if we don't then the state fair and the college will be landlocked because the land will sell. We want a place to grow and you know we're very blessed. We've got 396 acres on the Missouri State Fairgrounds at this point. We are still in the neighborhood of 500 camping spots short of what we could actually rent out for every fair which people find that amazing. We've got 1800 I think there now and what other things that people don't realize that our junior college is really a, a small university. There are so many opportunities out there, and what the college would like to do would be increase their footprint in their agriculture program. There's a lot of opportunities to partner with the ag groups in this state at the college and the fairgrounds. And, and really, you know, agriculture is our number one revenue producer. About $88 billion a year comes from agriculture. And the second is tourism and the Missouri State Fair accomplishes both of those. It's agriculture and tourism in that fair. And the college, again, wants to increase its footprint with agriculture um, programs. So I'm excited. Um, I think it looks good. I think the opportunity may present itself. You know how the budget process works in Jefferson City. The governor comes up with a budget, and then it's the House's responsibility to actually do the budget. And so we follow the governor, but we don't always follow the governor 100%. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll probably get into this later, but with all of the federal money that's been pumped into our state and the money that's continuing to flow and will flow for the next year, we just have to be careful how we spend that. 
I know the Missouri State Fair and Mark in a previous program brought up to how, how the Missouri State Fair is used year-round and very, very few days actually there's nobody on the Missouri State Fairgrounds. It is just utilized and it's tremendous and that of course impacts uh, our economic activity right here in Sedalia and Pettis County. And Carol Crooker down uh, at the Tourism Commission, I know she's uh, always excited when she can attract in uh, campers and overnight stays out there and, and with the additional purchase of that property out there, more sites could be developed and we could get larger groups in here. And I think that's just a be a tremendous impact on, on our local economy. Yeah, that's part of the goal is to um, be able to increase the buildings, increase the opportunities out at the fairgrounds, and then we could end up getting possibly bigger rodeos, mm -hmm. bigger um, cattle shows, uh, bigger RV shows, mm -hmm. and all of that brings tremendous amount of revenue into the city of Sedalia mm -hmm. and the county of Pettis and the state of Missouri, and all that um, grows into revenue. Representative Pollitt, let's change here a little bit uh, the topics. Uh, you've got a lot of things going on in Jeff City. Uh, maybe uh, some things that have already happened, uh, some bills and whatever that's already been put in place, and some ideas that you might uh, want to share with the public going forward. What's going to happen this coming year? Well, I appreciate that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm considered a second semester sophomore as this session starts this year. This will be my fourth year in Jefferson City. And when I first got into office, they said, you know, it goes fast and you don't realize how fast it goes, but it does go fast. And, and this year, last year, I was um, fortunate enough to be given a committee chairmanship, which usually for sophomores, that doesn't happen very often. And, and the speaker made me chair of the Rural, Rural Community Development Committee. And basically, it's a second agriculture committee. I'm also on general laws and I'm on K-12 education. And, and I was in Jeff City on Tuesday and Wednesday. Wednesday was the first day that we could file bills for the upcoming session. And I looked on my iPad this morning and there's been over 400 bills that's been filed in the first two days in the House. Mm -hmm. And there'll be a bunch, a large number of bills that will continue to be filed, maybe up to 2,000 bills that'll be filed. Mm -hmm. Okay, and bill filing for this session started December 1st, and we're pre-recording this, so there will be a lot of things changed from the time that we, we have this now till the time that we air it. But there was 400 bills that were filed the first two days. In normal session, there's about 2,000 bills that are filed in the House, and that doesn't mean they're all going to become law, of course. But right now, the main things that we're seeing that are being filed have to do with elections, have to do with voter ID, with paper ballots, with initiative petition reform, and, and there's been some tax bills filed that have to do with property taxes and personal property taxes, you know, we, we do have a concern with continuing escalation of property taxes and our senior citizens are on fixed income. Just how do you deal with that when the number of our um, communities rely on those taxes at the same time? We've got some of our senior citizens that struggle in that area when they're on fixed incomes. Um, mm -hmm. Vaccine mandates, passports, critical race theory, transgender boys with girls sports, Parent Bill of Rights. I think there's been set in the first two days this year, there's been 75 bills filed that have to do with education. The civil discourse of our country and our state when it comes to politics and ed public education has ended up in the hallways and the classrooms of our public schools. And Parent Bill of Rights, there's going to be a number of those that are also been filed. So there's a lot of things going on in those areas. Um, me personally, I've got nine bills I'm going to file to start with and maybe a couple other ones later on. I've been blessed with um, being asked to carry the omnibus ag bill. That bill is a, a bill of eight different ag programs that the end of this year, December 31st, they actually um, are no longer in existence. And last year the House passed the bill 
but the Senate didn't get to it, and so it's one of the first things on the agenda this year. Again, we talked about earlier what how important ag is into this state, and and we got to get this bill passed. There's tax credits on that bill, and there are people that just totally against tax credits. I understand that. At the same time, we do have tax credits that for every dollar spent by the state in tax credits, it brings in sometimes five or six dollars on the other end of state revenues, and that's usually the ag bills. Um, agriculture being the number one revenue producer, but we spend less state money promoting agriculture in this state than we do almost any other industry. And so that's interesting that agriculture usually um, is self-sufficient, but we need these bills passed. And I've got a workforce development bill. I've also got a rural jobs bill that I think are important. So those are some big, some big bills that are going to be coming up, and I've got a few others as well. At this point, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back in just a few minutes with our second segment, along with John Meehan and Ron Tolner. I'm Bo Matthews on Let's Talk on News Talk 1050 KSIS. Back for a second segment of Let's Talk on News Talk 1050 KSIS. As we continue, Ron Toner, I think you have something for Representative Brad Pollitt. Well, Brad, just prior to break, uh, you obviously had listed just a whole multitude of things that are, are going to be uh, addressed in this session. In fact, I'm sure we could probably talk the entire day about this, but obviously we are limited in the amount of time that we that we can. So. I might ask you to maybe tell the listening public more about the uh, particular bills that are of emphasis to you, that are near and dear to you, and 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 also prioritize those as far as uh, what what will be addressed uh, sooner rather than later. I think the first thing we'll probably do in January is a supplemental budget. It's a budget that since the courts overruled when we voted not to fund Medicaid expansion and the court, Supreme Court ruled that we had to do that, we have to address that money. We have to put that money in the right line item on the budget. And we've also got lots of federal money that's coming in. There's $8 billion we're going to get from the infrastructure bill that was passed and President Biden signed. There's $8 billion of that coming to Missouri that will be used for bridges and roads. And we have a lot more needs than the $8 billion, but that's, you know, it's, it's going to be something that we can improve our infrastructure on. We've got $2.6 billion come to the state of Missouri through the ARPA money, which is the American Rescue Plan Act. Got to figure out that's what the state's going to get itself. There's actually 5.5 total because the counties and the cities also get parts of that ARPA money. Um, the schools are getting ESSER funds, the elementary and secondary enrollment relief funds that they're getting. And, and so that all has to go into a supplemental budget. The schools doesn't, but the others do, and to figure out where we're going to spend that money on them. I just want to make something clear to the listeners on where I'm at. I've said this before, and I will say it again. In 1980, Missouri had a $4 billion budget. We passed a $35 billion budget in 2022. That is an 800% increase in that time. And that doesn't include the billions that I just told you we were going to get from the federal government. So I don't know where it stops. Uh, I hope that it stops soon. Uh, one of the things that Missouri has is a balanced budget amendment, and we stick to that. We're required to balance our budget. A lot of this... Uh, ARPA money's coming for states like California and Illinois and New York that don't have a balanced budget amendment in, and we're on the borderline of going broke. 
declaring bankruptcy if the federal government didn't bail them out. The Republican Party, the conservatives were, were basically saying letting them go bankrupt because they're going to be responsible for their own backyard like Missouri is. And that's not that didn't happen. But since that money was given to those states, Missouri also was offered that same kind of money. So what I think is important right now, once we do the supplemental budget, then we're going to have to do the congressional districts. The chamber, the House, and the Senate have to approve the congressional districts because of the census. That's all going to change. We've got eight congressional districts in the state of Missouri. Those We have a, um, a committee that's been working on that. They will bring us those, and we'll have to approve those or disapprove those and redo those. And then, of course, we don't have the authority to change the House and the Senate, but each one of our House districts and each one of our Senate districts in the state of Missouri will also change because of the census, and that'll stay that way for 10 years. So the chance that my district will not be exactly the way it is right now is, is pretty good, and the chance that Senator Crawford will or won't be our senator, there's a chance that that'll that that will change as well. So so those are things that will probably be first on the list. But the things that I think that the folks in the communities care about is the vaccine mandates. I think that's something that we have to make sure I know that the courts have ruled and stopped the federal mandates at this point and have put them on hold. So I will say that, you know, again, this is being pre-recorded. So a month from now, we'll, we'll, we'll know more about where those are at. But vaccine mandates are pretty important to me. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I've never been an anti-vaxxer, but at the same time, I think it has to be a choice. I don't think the federal government should be telling the citizens of this state or any state that they have to take a vaccine in order to have be employed. Anytime we bring up that we need more accountability for folks that aren't employed that are getting federal assistance or state assistance, we get a roadblock that's a mile high. But we want to put a roadblock in front of those individuals that want to work and support their families. And I think it has to be a choice. And again, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. And those that take the vaccine, I hope it works. I hope it makes this country better. Those that choose not to, they know the risks. And they're the ones that make their own decision for them and their families, along with the doctors that they work with. Um, critical race theory is, is a big topic. Desi did a survey, and there was only one school district in the state that would admit that they are doing critical race theory. So with that being said, I will say that when we vote in the House to ban critical race theory, there really shouldn't be any opposition because what people are telling us is that we are voting to ban something that's not happening. And if that's the case, then why is anybody going to be against that? That's how I look at it. You know, I think critical race theory has taken our, our country back 50 years in race relations, to be honest with you. And, you know, any time that you have an oppress and an oppressor and you tell folks that you're oppressed because of the color of your skin or you're an oppressor because of the color of your skin and not, your success has nothing to do with your character or your work ethic, I think that's dangerous. I'm going to, you know, I, I'm going to support legislation that deals with critical race theory. Just because I don't have bills that deal with that, you don't have to have your own bill to, to, to support different topics. And, um, you know, they've told us before to make sure that your bills are stuff that you understand you care about. And, and I do understand critical race theory. I care about what our kids are being taught in our schools. And, and I want every child to have an opportunity to be successful. And I think we've come a long way in race relations in this country, and I think what's happened in the last couple of years has backed us up a, a number of years, which I think is sad. Transgender boys playing girls' sports, I think the least thing that I can do is to vote to not allow transgender boys compete against girls in sports. 
being an individual who based my whole career on coaching girls and coaching girls basketball and seeing those young athletes, telling those young athletes there's nothing they can't do. Don't tell anyone. Don't let anyone tell you that there's nothing, that you've got any type of inhibitor to what you can do in your life. You know, I think it needs to be a, a fair playing field. That doesn't mean that, in my opinion, that when someone turns 18 and they believe that they're transgender, that they deal with that in their own personal way. Um, I don't think the taxpayers ought to be paying for it, and I don't think that um, those individuals should compete against our, our girls because I truly believe there's two sexes, a male and a female. There can be some confusion, but I don't think there should be confusion in how we handle that when it comes to sports. Uh, Brad, I know one of the concerns uh, that's been expressed is the the elections, uh, the election process, voter ID, and those kind of issues. Uh, we have any bills pending or passed recently that you can talk about in that regards? Well, last year in the House, we did pass a photo ID bill and um, initiative petition reform, and those got bogged down in the Senate, and they did not pass the Senate, and so those will be brought up again this year. I'm in favor of voter ID. I do believe that if we're going to require a photo ID that we need to make sure that it is available for free and it's not something that you have to purchase from the government. I think that's important and everybody have that opportunity to get that. I know Secretary of State Ashcroft really wants us to go back to paper ballots instead of the electronic ballots and um, I'm in favor of doing that. You know, I've never been a um, proponent of initiative petitions. I believe you all send me to Jeff City to represent the district. My 39 to 40,000 patrons. Not everybody agrees with how I vote. You know, I am a conservative. I, most of my ratings on the conservative scales are between 80 and 90 percent. Folks ask me why I'm not a hundred percenter, and, and, and I will just tell you that I, I, I try to think on my own. I try to think is what good what is good legislation, whether it's being supported by the Republican Party or not, or the Conservative Party, and and whether I think that's good for my constituents to start with, and whether I think it's good for the state or, or good for the country. So, I've never been a big proponent of initiative petitions. Initiative petitions are the one thing that I truly believe, in a normal year, can throw our balanced budget out of whack. And when folks vote on certain things, when we vote on things in Jefferson City, we know what the projected bill for that bill will be. We know how much that bill will cost. And when an initiative petition is passed, then it throws into turmoil how much money that's going to cost and what we have done with the budget. And it really causes some issues with our, with our balanced budget amendment. The one thing that I support 100% is changing the initiative petition to a higher percentage. You know, I would like to see the initiative petition go to at least 60%. Because if you're going to change the Constitution, who I believe the Constitution of Missouri and the Constitution of the United States are sacred doctrines. And if you're going to change that, then I think you need to have more than f one over 50 percent. I think you need to have a higher percentage in order to change the Constitution. And that's one of the bills that, that will be thrown around down there pretty heavily is, is making it 66 percent of the popular vote to change the Constitution. You know, and I think that's very important. Representative Pollitt, the legislature last year passed a sales tax on gas, a gas tax on it, and, and it was to be phased in gradually, two and a half cents a year over a six-year period for a total generation of, what, 12 and a half cents, I guess. So 
Yes, it does apply to everyone who buys gas in the state of Missouri, and that means the people like you and I and, and all of us here that actually live here, but then also all of those folks that just transfer through the state of Missouri. But then the legislature went one step further and actually gave an opportunity for Missourians to get a refund of that, uh, of that gas tax, too. And, of course, initially, that two and a half cents is probably maybe a little bit more paperwork than most folks want to go through to get that refund. But as that tax accumulates over those five years or six, then uh, that might be worthwhile for them to, to keep the records and those kind of things. But now to bring that more current is there's some talk about legislation being filed in their, on this year's uh, session that actually to repeal that. Can you address the whole issue? I can address the whole issue. Um, first of all, I voted against the gas tax. Um, one of the harder votes I had to take, uh, the governor, I support Governor Parson. I th um, actually, I think we've got a friendship, to be honest with you, and I support his agenda. I didn't support the gas tax, and so his folks were in my office four mornings in a row asking me to support that, and I just couldn't do it, and I told them why I couldn't do it. Um, number one, 12 and a half cents. Um, I believe that over a five-year period that the gas is going to go up 15 cents. I've never seen a half a cent on a gas, a, a gas sign yet. Now, that doesn't mean that the state won't get 12 and a half cents. I understand that. But I think gas is going to be raised 15 cents over five years, and that bothered me. I don't know whether that two and a half cents was a deal with the petroleum industry that they would get two and a half cents, and that way they wouldn't fight this. I don't know that. But I couldn't get an answer to that. And, and um, you know, if it had been 10 cents, I would have been a little more open to that. The other reason I opposed the gas tax was because I had a feeling that, with the new administration, there was going to be additional government dollars coming from Washington, D.C. that would help us address a lot of our infrastructure needs. And as it turned out, I was right with this um, infrastructure bill and $8 billion are coming dedicated toward infrastructure. So I would have liked to have seen us wait to see what the federal government was going to do. I would like to have seen that gas tax be a little less. Now, yes, the, 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 the bill was... was um, mirrored after South Carolina's bill. And in South Carolina, over the last, and I can't, I'm sure I'm right on this, but over the last five years, only 20% of the folks have asked for their, um, their gas tax to be refunded. What I would like to see is the process to get your gas tax refunded be a little simpler. Right now, there's a form where you have to list the name of the, the station, the name of the company, the address, the VIN number for your vehicle, how many gallons you purchased, and you have to keep a list of all that. Um, to me, I would, I would like to say if you can keep your receipts and you can send in where you bought the majority of your gas from and the bin number of where the majority of the gas went through and the total gallons you used, to me, that should be enough. But I think the process of getting that money back is a little too complicated. And um, for a normal driver, the first year it's like $25 a vehicle. But when this thing is completely phased in, in five years, and you just say you're a family of four vehicles. I got seven vehicles with my farm vehicles and stuff. And, you know, it could be a pretty good chunk of money, but it's pretty complicated on how you do that. So I would like to see that simplified. Yes, there has been a bill that's been filed in the House and filed in the Senate to repeal that. 
I can't tell you at this point where I stand on that. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty hard about repealing things that have been voted in, whether, um, whether it's by the people or whether it's by the, the legislature. So I'll just have to see how that goes. Um, with that being said, being totally transparent, I did vote against Medicaid expansion, and that was voted in by the people of the state of Missouri. Um, seven out of the 114 counties actually voted for Medicaid expansion. But the numbers in those seven counties were so high, it um, erased the rule. And in Pettis County, I think in Pettis County, it was 57 against 43-4 or something like that. So my constituents actually voted against Medicaid expansion. But So I want to be transparent on that with the statement that I made a little bit earlier. So, yes, there are a lot of things to think about. There's a lot of things to study. We will return for our third segment in just a few minutes with John Behan and Ron Toner. I'm Bo Matthews on Let's Talk. We'll be back in a few minutes. Our third and final segment on today's Let's Talk program, and Ron Tolner's back at the microphone. Brad, as we've indicated, of course, we pre-record these things, and then they're uh, played to the public at a later date. Uh, as we're standing here today, this is the first week of December, and as you indicated before, lots of things can change between now and when this will actually air. But one of the big issues right now is uh, the subject that is before the Supreme Court, which is the abortion issue in uh, Roe versus Wade. Can you maybe give us your thoughts on what is happening in D.C. on that issue and the implications of that uh, to Missouri and what the talk is in Jefferson City? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the Supreme Court is as we are taping this, Supreme Court is hearing that case right now. It's the Mississippi law that bans abortion after 15 weeks, and, and the justices are trying to um, come to a conclusion on where that bill fits in Roe v. Wade and, and whether this is the time to reverse Roe v. Wade. Um, Missouri last year, I can't remember, last year or the year before, we passed the heartbeat bill, which basically says that when a heartbeat is detected, then we would not allow for an abortion to take place. Um, you know, justice um, Sotomayor made a comment, and I'm going to read this because I think this is extremely offensive. Um, you know, in about 40% of dead people, if you touch their feet, the foot will recoil. There are spontaneous acts by the dead brain people. So I don't think that the response to by a fetus necessarily proves that there's a sensation of pain or that there's a consciousness. To me, that's just repulsive. Fetuses are alive. How, how do we determine when when you when somebody's injured and they go to a hospital? How do they determine when someone's dead or alive? They get their stethoscope out and they they check for a heartbeat. If you don't have a heartbeat, they put the paddles on you and they try to resuscitate you because you need a heartbeat to live. And when you can hear a baby's heartbeat, at the very least, that is a live as a live person. And our bill in Missouri basically says that. Now, there are folks that say, you know, at the time of conception is when life begins. And that's what I believe, at the time of conception, that life begins. But at the very least, when a heartbeat is heard, there is a real life in. And I, I just think that it, it is um, unacceptable for someone to say that I'm what the justice said. I just, I just find that very offensive. And, you know, in Missouri, we did pass that bill. And whatever happens in this court case will determine a lot of what other states and what the state of Missouri. There's a chance that they'll come to some type of resolution where they'll kick it back to the states and allow states to um, forge their own bills and their own law on, on when life begins. And with that being said, then I truly believe that we need to do two things better, much better, 
than what we do in the state of Missouri. One of them I ran on. I don't know the answer to this yet. I don't know if it'll ever know the answer to this. How do we hold men accountable for the children that they father? That is so important. You know, we're telling women that they can't abort a fetus, which I agree with. But the man who fathered that child is not being held accountable in any way, shape, or form if they don't want to be. And that bothers me. And I don't know the answer to that. If somebody knew that answer, I'd be more than happy for them to call my office and and leave that. Um, I would like to see that. And the other thing that we need to do a better job of in this state, and we took some steps last year, was to make sure that we work to improve the lives of those children that are born. Just to say that you're pro-life doesn't mean pro-life until that life is living outside the womb. It means you're pro-life to make sure that every one of those those young people have an opportunity to be successful and to make sure that some need more resources put their way than others. But we need to make sure that we're doing those things in order to say that we're pro-life. We need to be pro-life all the way through. Representative Pollitt, there's uh, some unsettledness within the Missouri legislature, and I think most of that has come about because of what's going on in our national government. As an example is uh, Representative Vicki Hartzler, who is now running for the U.S. Senate, and of course that would mean she vacate her position as a U.S. representative, and so there are folks in the state of Missouri that are then put their uh, hat in the ring to take her place there, and, and there's just a lot of politics going on here. Can is, is that going to affect your ability to get things done in Jeff City this year? Well, as we've talked about for the last hour, there are so many important things we need to be looking at, and there's, there's, there's important issues we need to address. I, I've never been an individual that believes that the more bills that we pass, the better off we are. Um, I've never believed that. Sometimes the less government does, the way better off we are, and a lot of it has to do with what the subjects are. But yes, when Senator Blunt announced that he was not going to run for re-election, I think that was maybe April, you saw a different demeanor in Jefferson City. You saw people starting to jockey for upcoming positions, and when Representative Hartzler announced pretty early that she was going to run for that position, of course, we are in the 4th Congressional District here. We may not be once things are redistricted, but right now we are. And so you started to see senators that are Missouri senators start looking at, trying to figure out, testing the waters on whether they would run for Vicky's spot. You saw some testing the waters on whether they would run for Senator Blunt's spot. You saw House members testing the waters on whether they would run for Vicky's spot or for some of the spots that may open up when if Jason Smith decides to run or, or some of those folks, some spots that will open up. And so, yeah, things just kind of grounded to a halt. There is some speculation that this year there'll be a lot of gridlock. There'll be a lot of uh, um, grandstanding on running for those positions, trying to get as much airtime as they can on the House and Senate floors to make sure people know where they stand on issues. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with that and how our leadership in Jefferson City, both in the House and the Senate, handle those situations. Uh, Representative Pollitt, you uh, personally have filed uh, uh, several bills. Uh, Could you share with the public maybe a couple of of those that are real important to you? the main bill that I filed last year, and it actually got some some um, tread, was the open enrollment bill. My bill will allow public schools to open their boundaries and to let parents petition to enroll their student into a district in which they do not live in those districts. Um, I believe in parent choice, and I think we need to give parents more choices. And, and I've always believed this. And when I first ran, the education groups knew that I was an open enrollment proponent. Because you live behind a certain line, doesn't, in my opinion, shouldn't keep you from going to 
another district as far as my bill basically allows every state, every district in the state to opt in. If you don't want to opt in, it means you do not want anybody to come to your district. But that does not mean that students can't leave your district to go to another district. It doesn't keep that from happening. And the reason I think this is so important is I believe that, you know, we have parents that work all over this state. And um, for a parent, if there's a parent that lives in Fayette, who works in Columbia and has small children, you know, that's a 35-minute drive, 40-minute drive. Would it not be better for that family that that parent could take those children to work with her? Those children could attend Columbia Public Schools, and when they get done with work, they can pick their child up and they can go back home. I know a specific situation I won't get into where that actually applies. And, and so I've always felt that way. I've felt that, you know, we have some fantastic agriculture programs surrounding Sedalia in some of our smaller districts. Sedalia 200 does not have an agriculture agriculture program within the Sedalia 200 school district. The college dropped the main part of the CTC agriculture program, which they might pick up with the purchase of this land. But at the same time, if you've got kids in the Sedalia 200 school district that would like to go to a smaller school, feel more comfortable in a smaller school setting, want to be in an agriculture program because that's what they want to do for their future, then if those schools participate, then those children would have the opportunity to, to go to that school. Uh, Representative Bob, tell us about the money flow in that kind of a situation. Well, the money, the local money stays local and the attendance money would go with the student. The attendance money is the $6,375 for your attendance. So it's the first part of the foundation formula. And that money would then, you would count that student as a full-time equivalent student in your school district and your district would get that. So you've got school districts out there that have, let's say, I'll just use my own district, Sedalia. Let's say Sedalia has 50 openings at the high school where they know that they have teachers that are teaching classes that have less than 20 kids in it. Well, to fill that seat, it's not going to cost you a dollar with expenditures, but you're going to get $6,275 in attendance money for that student. And what I think will happen is this: a lot of school districts who have open seats will, will participate, and that will allow us to educate kids in this state cheap. There's only so much money to go around, and we do have 550 districts in the state, and I know the folks that are against my bill are worried about consolidating smaller districts and consolidation, and, and I I understand that. That's not the goal. But at the same time, I believe that if a district does have to consolidate, then apparently the parents who had students in that district were not happy with that district because I believe they're going to stay. I patterned this bill after the state of Iowa. They've had open enrollment since 1989. 44 states in the United States have some form of open enrollment. With that being said, last year, the state of Iowa had 6.5% of their full-time equivalent students that actually participated in open enrollment. So it's not like 50% of the kids want to move around. But I do think it gives parents a choice. And I'd like to keep that choice in the public school system, being taught by public school teachers who pay into the public school retirement system. And I just think it's good for everybody. Representative Pollitt, uh, we're about to wrap up here this morning. And I want to thank on behalf of Ron, myself, and Bo, your dedication, a lifetime of dedication to education, number one. And number two, your background in agriculture and you understand the importance of the ag industry through throughout the state of Missouri. And when, when I say that, the first person I think of is Senator Jim 
Matthewson. His first love was, of course, in his senatorial district, and he was a super strong supporter of the Missouri State Fair and all the great things that he has done to support Sedalia, Pettis County, and the Missouri State Fair. And I know you want to carry that legacy. We had two men, and then, of course, Senator Jim now passed away. He was on in the other party, and, and in your case, uh, the party uh, that you're still working so close for the same ideals and the same great things for Sedalia, Pettis County. So thank you for your service, and, and I know you and Jim were friends. Uh, share with us. First of all, I want to say that um, mentioning my name in the same sentence as Senator Jim is, is, is not quite accurate. Senator Jim, he was a an icon in Missouri politics, uh, 31 years in Jefferson City, six years in the House, and 25 in the Senate. In eight of those years in the Senate, he was the Senate pro tem. And um, he cared about agriculture. He cared about public education. He cared about the Missouri State Fair. When I decided to run, I went and told Senator Jim that I was going to run, and I think he hoped that I was going to be a blue. I told him I wasn't, and he kind of just hung his head down. But he gave me some good advice. You know, he said, number one is just keep your head down and your mouth shut for a year or two and figure out how it works. And that's what I did. He said, uh, don't let it change who you are. Be the same person you were when you were superintendent of schools, and I tried to do that. And he said, don't be afraid to reach across the aisle when you could reach across the aisle and things and try to find common ground. And, and I continue to try to do that. It's hard in today's political world to do that. You may have a belief that you got to be real careful about just because of the wrath you'll take from your own party if you don't follow party lines. And I don't always follow party lines, but with that being said, we did lose an icon, and he did a lot for Sedalia, and I'm just a small speck in that at this point, and, and I do appreciate the words of advice that he gave me. And, you know, in closing, I'll say that, you know, we start every session on the House floor with a prayer, and then we say the Pledge of Allegiance. And, and I have disciplined myself at the end of the Pledge of Allegiance that I look at the big board and I find my name, and my name's there, and that means that 39,000 voters of Pettis County and Eastern Johnson County voted me to go down there to represent their values and represent their will, and I take that very seriously. And I do that every single day to remind myself why I'm there. I'm not there for personal gain. I'm there because folks have sent me there because they trust me, and I take that to heart, and I always take that to heart, and I want to tell you that even in a time when things are so rambunctious right now and so unsettled, and, and it, it feels like there's just no way we're going to get out of this, that um, it is an honor, it's a privilege for me to be down there to try to do the right things for the people of this community and for Eastern Johnson County. That's all the time we have this morning. Thank you for listening to Let's Talk. Join Ron Tolner, John Meehan, and myself, Bo Matthews, every Saturday at 10 a.m. right here on News Talk 1050 KSIS.